Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with restaurant critic and food writer Mimi Sheraton about what to look for in a restaurant, what constitutes good food writing, and she also speaks about her latest project, Ask Mimi. I'm sort of the Dr. Ruth of food. People call in from from all over the country or other countries and ask questions about food and sometimes life-related, like my mother-in-law doesn't like the way I cook, you know, so you see immediately we're talking about much more than food. But first, journalist Megan McCarran talks about her article, The Myth of Authenticity is Killing Tex-Mex. McCarran argues that Tex-Mex is an authentic cuisine, not a cheap rip-off of Mexican cooking. 
When barbecue joints are flourishing and demanding high prices, mom-and-pop Tex-Mex eateries are closing down. Megan, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good. Uh, Let's start with, if possible, a loose definition of of when you say Tex-Mex food. What what, what are you actually talking about? So a loose definition of Tex-Mex is it's cooking developed in Texas, um, originally as often a ranch food in Texas, back when Texas was not very urban, by people often of Mexican descent um, or who are Tejanos, you know, who've been in Texas and their family settled in Texas before Texas was part of the U.S. Um, That's using the local ingredients and more kind of Mexican-influenced cooking styles and dishes and food that is Mexican, but it's also Texan, and it's really fundamentally a regional cuisine of Texas. So there are a few ingredients that really uh, define Tex-Mex versus, let's say, traditional Mexican cooking. What, What would be some of those ingredients? So interestingly, one of those ingredients is cumin. In San Antonio, there is actually a small but significant population of people who came from the Canary Islands. And the thought is that there's so much cumin in Chile and therefore sort of moving forward a lot of Tex-Mex cooking because of the influence of that specific cuisine of the Canary Islands. And the chili piquin, which is a native chili to Texas, is also very important. Uh, Beef, uh, flour tortillas, and, you know, more recently, yellow cheese and, like, sometimes even Velveeta. You know, you want to make a great queso at home, like, get some Velveeta and get a can of Rotel. Combine those two things, get some chips, and, like, you have a great party, you know? I I think you can make great Mm. Tex-Mex with packaged foods. Well, a lot of people have written that Taco Bell, et cetera, had an adverse effect on Tex-Mex because it branded Tex-Mex as being fast food or cheap food, right? So so Tex-Mex went in one direction, at least for a while. And then barbecue, that sort of got upgraded to a much more expensive product. So you talk a lot about Tex-Mex went in one direction, barbecue went in another. Could you just sort of explain that to us? Sure, yeah. Um, And this is kind of a multi-layered process. But Rob Walsh in his book about Tex-Mex makes this observation that Tex-Mex was, you know, when when it started coming into restaurants, when there started to be Tex-Mex restaurants in Texas cities in the 30s and 40s and 50s, totally scratch-made cuisine. It was home cooking, not a lot of packaged ingredients. And then Taco Bell comes to Texas and helped create this idea that Mexican food should be cheap. It should be made with commodity products. And so then, yes, the Tex-Mex restaurants had to kind of keep up with that. And that's when you start to see a lot of the processed yellow cheese, maybe more packaged ingredients. And then what's sort of happened in more recent years is barbecue has become this sort of fetishized, you know, almost hipsterized kind of food, right? Because in Texas, this sort of slow, slow wood smoke barbecue survived more often than in almost any other state where there is a barbecue tradition. 
other people saw that happening and started opening their own sort of more expensive barbecue restaurants, the price of brisket shot up as a result. So it's just sort of this snowball of upscaling has happened in barbecue. And we haven't seen that happen in Tex-Mex in the same way. So what about Taco Bell and its influence? Do you think Taco Bell was really the major reason why Tex-Mex got downgraded to commodity level? Is that really what happened? And you think that's going to change now? Or, or, or what was the reason for that? I, I, I'm not sure, but I do think the pressure on Tex-Mex to be a cheap food and also the rise of industrial food after World War II is sort of inextricable, right? And we see this in a lot of different cuisines across America, especially those cooked by people who aren't white. You know, there's always this expectation that Chinese food should be cheap or Mexican food should be cheap or um, soul food cooked by black Americans should be cheap. And it's, um, I think it's a product of American racism. And I think so many conversations are happening in so many of those spaces now about how can we get back to getting people to pay for scratch made versions of this cuisine? How can we allow chefs from those backgrounds to cook as ambitiously as they want to and charge tasting menu prices if they want to, while also not leaving out the communities who've always eaten these dishes, you know, by raising the price points too high? Is there a foodways or food culture in Texas that has yet, I mean, other than Tex-Mex and barbecue, that has yet to make it onto the national stage? You think that will? I mean, there is, there was a real popularity of sort of that cowboy cooking that was also vaquero cooking that has sort of fallen away, that chili is a part of, but it's a little different, you know, things like chicken fried steak and that side of Texas food. I don't know if it'll ever be popularized, but it is very delicious, you know, and the, and the chili parlor is actually dying off, which is a little sad. But also I think there's a ton of super, super exciting cooking happening in Houston. And you're now starting to see a lot of Vietnamese style sort of crawfish, spicy crawfish places spreading around the U.S. that, you know, was really at the heart of Houston dining for a while. So I think we'll start to see more things like that happening. Megan, thank you so much. I really enjoyed your article, The Myth of Authenticity is Killing Tex-Mex, and uh, the conversation as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was journalist Megan McCarran. Milstreet Radio is also available as a podcast. Just subscribe and listen anytime. New shows go up every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. It's time to take your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, okay, you ready for some more calls? Yes, you bet. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Edie. Hi, Edie. Where are you calling from? Sanibel Island, Florida. Ooh, lovely. How can we help you today? I wrote in about getting a really good baba ganoush recipe. I can't get it to turn out the way it does in the restaurants. You know, when it's really good, it's missing something. All of the recipes that I've researched online are very similar. It's missing something, and I don't know what. I feel like there's a secret. How are you cooking the eggplant? I cut the eggplants in half, 
brush them with a little bit of oil, and then I put them on a baking stone, like a cookie sheet type of baking stone in the oven for about uh, 20, 30 minutes. High heat? So they're nice and soft. High heat, yes. Some of my editors have, when they were in the Middle East, watch people cook eggplant, and mm-hmm. they cook it right over a flame. Open flame. Open flame. You could do it on a grill, oh, or you could really? do it on your burner, but they get the uh-huh. outside black charred. charred. Mm-hmm. And that's the secret. You're probably missing the smoky taste, I bet. Yes, yeah. that is it. That's it. Do you have a grill, so an open flame. Edie? I do. There is a wonderful recipe from my friend Elizabeth Carmel. She's a grilling expert. She used to work for Weber years ago. She taught a lot of those guys who became famous, everything they know about grilling. She has a book all about grilling. I think it's The Art of Grilling. I always loved her eggplant. She takes a whole eggplant and she studs it with garlic cloves. And Mm -hmm. then she grills it. And then she lets it finish off heat so it picks up even more smoke. It's a wonderful, Mm -hmm. wonderful recipe. And you have to cook it. So Long past the, the point you whole? think you should. Yes, whole. Yeah, whole. And whole. It's, it should really okay. look like somebody pulled the plug out of a balloon. Right. Yeah, with it being... <laughs> it looks deflated. Yeah, it's yeah. deflated and charred. Good. But the, what's cool about hers is it's got the garlic in it, so the mm. garlic's cooking too mm-hmm. because you always add garlic. I think Chris is right. You just need to char it in some way, either on a direct flame Good. or, you know, under the broiler, and you need to cook it till it's completely past deflated. Dead. Yeah. Long past gotcha. dead. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Then also the tahini, if you add tahini to it, make sure you get a good brand. Some of the, I won't mention names, but the supermarket are just too burnt. What's your favorite brand? Sum, S-O-O-M, Sum Where Tahini. Where do you find it? It's Two Sisters in Philadelphia import it. Actually, we sell it in our online store. But it's very um, smooth. It doesn't separate, really. And it doesn't have that really bitter flavor to it. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Well, that means it's fresh. Yeah, I think sometimes really tahini can go rancid. Yeah, it gets, it gets uh, nasty it, yeah. and old. And, yeah. yeah. So make sure you have good tahini. Well, one restaurant owner that I asked said he thought that the difference might be he only uses Lebanese tahini, and he said could it could be the tahini. So I did get a Lebanese, but I haven't made it since I bought the that tahini. I just got it this week. Well, good. So well, do that and char the eggplant. And you'll you'll, you're made. You're good. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you have a question about instant pot dinners or slow cooker suppers, give us a call at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Um, Yes, my name is Lori. Hi, Lori. Where are you calling from? Asheville, North Carolina. How can we help you? My grandma, when I was growing up, and she passed when I was, I was about 10, and she made this cake in a cast iron skillet, much the way that you would make a pan of cornbread. So she would, like, keep the cast iron skillet on the stove and then put the fat, which was butter for the cake and lard for the cornbread, <laughs> in the skillet and after it got hot and melted, and then pour that directly into the batter for the cake, pour that cake batter back into the skillet and bake it in the oven. And unfortunately, we, my mother and I got almost all of her recipes before she passed, but this one we did not get. And she and I both have tried multiple times to replicate it and just have not been able to do so. And... The thing about this cake is when it would cook, it would smell like sugar and eggs. Like it was just 
I think it must have had a lot of eggs in it compared to the other ingredients. She always cooked with self-rising flour, always. I don't even think she owned any other flour because she mostly made this cake and biscuits, which she used self-rising flour for. And I can tell you just from my own baking and years of experience baking that it had a very, um, like a heavier crumb. Um, it must have had a low flour to other ingredients ratio. The edges would get caramelized even. Like the sugar was so much and then you were putting it in this super hot cast iron skillet that the edges would get almost sticky with caramel and the, in- the interior was really moist with butter. Yeah, I think it's very much like an upside-down cake that you cook in a um, cast-iron skillet. And they're, yes. they're called skillet cakes, but you can also do them. I mean, when you put, like, peaches or pineapple well, you can in the bottom. Put butter and sugar and fruit, and you cook that down, you add the batter to it. But this is just a basic skillet cake where you melt the butter, add it to the batter, put it back in. I think Stella Parks, her new book, Brave Tart, has a couple uh-huh. recipes for these. She's the baker for SeriousEats.com. Yes. And you can actually go to Serious Seats, and she has a couple of recipes for, I think. These kind of cakes. Yeah, these kind of cakes. And she's really, by the way. Oh, really? She's a really good baker. It's a great book. Okay. Well, um, I'll start there. I mean, I've had no luck so far. <laughs> Hopefully, this will be a good start. And I really, really thank you for your time. Okay, Lori. Thanks, Lori. Okay. Thank you guys so much. Bye-bye. You know, that's the really sad thing, is that grandmothers take recipes with them to the graves. Very often they do it on purpose, too. I know they do, because they don't want anybody else right. to be able to make it. I know that, particularly those They Italian want to be missed when they're gone. Yeah. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my interview with restaurant critic and journalist Mimi Sherratt, right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables. Crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. 
my other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. In 1975, Mimi Sheraton became the first female restaurant critic at the New York Times, and went on to reinvent the genre using disguises to get an honest meal, and also employing a smart literary style of writing. Today, Sheraton is 92 years old and with no plans to retire. She's currently a columnist at the Daily Beast and just launched a new special series with a Sporkful podcast. Mimi, how are you? I'm very well, very well. I, I don't want to rehash too many things everyone knows, but uh, in December 75, you became the food critic for the New York Times. And uh, the person who hired you was a woman who didn't think a woman should be the food critic for the New York Times. Is that correct? Well, not quite. The woman who wouldn't hire me was a woman and a, an ardent feminist. And it took five more years for Joan oh. Whitman, who was then the editor of the section, to call me up and ask me to come in for an interview. The woman who wouldn't hire me didn't oh. hire me. Her name was Charlotte Curtis. The woman who did hire me was Joan Whitman and, of course, hired by the editor of the paper, Abe Rosenthal. You still remember both of those names. Yeah. Well, fortunately for all of us, you became food critic. Uh, first of all, 
It's a very artificial way of eating because you go with a crowd. Everybody orders different food. You get to taste. You can't just enjoy one thing or two things. You have to try to eat everything, obviously, as a critic. Is that something you eventually get used to and and get to like, or is it always a, a burden? That is, you would prefer not to have to do that. I never minded it. I rather enjoyed it because I was really interested to know what I would find out. And I think when you do it that way, you kind of know how to separate flavors in your mind. It was, however, something that annoyed my husband. And once in a while when we went out together, he said, do you think we could eat the same thing tonight and have a shared experience? (laughs) Yeah, well, that sounds like me. (laughs) So we did. But unless it was a restaurant like Chinese or Indian where people often do go with crowds, uh, it was never more than four people, and usually just my husband and myself on the first try to see if it was going to be worth reviewing before we piled a lot of people and expense into it. I know that other critics after you at the Times got a lot of press and ink about dressing up and disguises, but you were, the, I think, the first one to really do that. I, I love this quote uh, you said, even before the internet, I was recognized a few times. There are very few things more embarrassing than to show up in a wig with glasses and have the owner say, quote, good evening, Miss Sheraton. <laughs> exactly. I, I would say so. <laughs> you didn't know what to do. Should I flip off the wig? Should I, you know, <laughs> right. play it straight? Stay in character? And I had glasses and wigs. I didn't, I didn't wear strange outfits, though. It, now, let's talk about one of my favorite topics, uh, crowdsourcing, Vox Populi, et cetera. Y- you're pretty clear that today, I think you quote, we have a lot of voices that I think are not worth listening to, particularly the ones from consumers, <laughs> which are like, like Yelp and so on. Uh, so right. I, I actually agree with you, but maybe you could take on the burden of explaining why you think you're right. Well, first of all, I don't know how qualified they are to have a trustworthy opinion. But even more, I have never seen, and I'm willing to be wrong on this, I have never seen any such service require proof that the person has been there. That's a good point. I have gotten, in in the past, not for a long time, just as on a mailing list, for example, many years ago, the questionnaires from Zagat mm-hmm. saying, asking me to be a responder with all the things to right. fill in. And I thought, how do they know if I've been there? I've even asked Tim Zagat that. And he said, we have a way to which I say baloney <laughs> because you could just, uh, if it's a friend who owns the restaurant, a relative, right. or if you just want to sound off and you, you repeat the kind of rating from your local critic just to have a voice in there. So... I don't really care what those people say. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, in social media, you see all sorts of strange comments and their access to be ground all over. So let's, let's talk about casual dining. I think you and I come out of the same place. You walk into a restaurant in the first 15 or 30 seconds. What are some of the things that, that you'll notice I won't, either good or bad? Uh, I might notice the number of help on the floor. I might notice if a lot of people at the table seem agitated and are moving around a lot. I would certainly notice how many tables are empty. I might notice the overall age of the people. 
I might notice if there are serving stations around the room. I'll tell you a funny story about that. There is a super Greek diner in Chicago known as Lou Mitchell's. And it's right near the Mercantile Exchange and the Stock Exchange. And it opens four or five in the morning because the traders are working with people in Asia and so on. And the food is just larger than life, uh, the breakfasts. And I went one morning alone because I was writing about Chicago restaurants. I went around 8.30. And I had to stand online a little. And as he does, the owner or his manager gives out little boxes of um, uh, a candy. What do they call it? Anyway, to, to women standing on the line. And finally, after about 15 minutes, I became the head of the line. And the manager came over to me and said, where is your place? And I said, what place? And he said, your restaurant. I said, I don't have a restaurant. What makes you think so? He said, the way your eyes were working the room. Huh. That's really interesting. (laughs) It's like a gambler in a casino. Like (laughs) you're looking around. Milk duds is what they gave out in little boxes to any lady on the line. And, you know, it was super food. Everybody who ordered breakfast got a cooked prune and a slice of orange and a little cup of yogurt, no matter what you Mm -hmm. ordered. I I imagine it's still the same, but it was wonderfully observant of this man to notice my eyes working the room. Smart guy. Um, You liked Joel Robuchon uh, and his cooking, and you talk about his famous potatoes with a pound of butter and a pound of cooked pureed potatoes. But he had a great quote, I'm a compagnon and will always be one. Could you just explain what that means and why you thought that was so wonderful? Well, a compagnon was an, an itinerant apprentice who walked around and got jobs, what we would call a stage, in a restaurant for a certain period of time, usually for no money or very little, or just room and board, to learn and train. And uh, in the the old style, he wore a certain kind of uniform and a big leather hat and so on. And a little figure of that was at the bottom of the first uh, Robuchon restaurant, Jamin, which had three stars, which is the one with the mashed potatoes that I wrote about for Time magazine. And so I asked him what that was on the page, and he explained the whole compagnon theory. And he felt he was always an itinerant apprentice, that he always had something to learn, that it was never final. And as he progressed in life, he kept learning. And he was a beautifully simple man, very honest and true, and it was very touching when he said that. He was he was very cavalier also. I mean, when we met, he took my hand and kissed it, which is <laughs> a little dated. There's a grown-up for you. What about the third rail of modern food writing and restaurants, which is the term authenticity, a loaded term if there ever was one? Uh, do you have any feelings about the the current usage around authenticity uh, and how people are dealing with that in terms of food? Well, it's funny you should ask because I've just begun trying to do some research on what authenticity means in various aspects. 
And my son was telling me that when he was at college, both at Columbia and the University of Chicago, that was a serious topic uh, in many disciplines that everyone talked about. What do we mean when we say a dish is authentic? Do we mean it is old-fashioned and made in exactly the way it was always made? Is it our authenticities different for different people, depending on your background? Because the whole subject of taste really means opinion. Taste is a word that strictly means our palate, but we say she has a terrible taste in men or someone has a terrible taste in clothes. So I'm not sure that my authenticity would be your authenticity. It's quite nebulous and very interesting. So authenticity is relative. <laughs> is authenticity authentic? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not, see, that's that's why you're the, you're the most more famous food writer. You've actually earned it. <laughs> So uh, I, I do want to ask about this thing you're doing with uh, the Sporkful, Dan Pashman. So you're doing a, a call-in and ask Mimi call-in. How does that work? I'm sort of the Dr. Ruth of food. People <laughs> call in from, from all over the country or other countries such as Canada or Mexico and ask questions about food and sometimes life-related like my mother-in-law doesn't like the way I cook. Right. Watch, you know, so you right. see immediately we're talking about much more than food. Um, and it's quite interesting to me the range of questions and the dilemmas people have over things that I think are so simple. It makes me sad to think that they're worrying about such basic, simple food and life questions. Like, uh, I don't like vinegar because it's so acid. How can I use huh. vinegar in a dish? I said, well, try lemon juice or some of the sweeter vinegars like apple cider vinegar or right. sherry vinegar. I, I, I agree. I, I found two other things about people who call in with questions. One is uh, it, it, cooking is so social. It's almost that old, was it the Cosmo column, can this marriage be saved, you know? I mean, the, people say, my husband likes this, I like that, who's right? So it's, it's, it's <laughs> very, those are the tough ones. Nobody's right. You're both right. Uh, right. But there's some pretty serious cooks out there, and I think, for me, it just feels to me like there are more, more people doing more serious cooking than when I got started in this back in the 70s, maybe. I, I've had the impression that people sit watching the Food Network and your program while they send out for food <laughs> so they have time to watch the program. <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> they, they watch my show and get takeout? Thanks for yeah. that. <laughs> uh, last, last question. Going back in time, is, is there some moment that, uh, that really sticks with you because it was one of those things that could never happen twice? Well, one of my most outstanding reviews that has followed me all of the years is the one I did on Reos, the Italian mm -hmm. restaurant up in Spanish Harlem, the little dive with eight tables, and what happened to it after I reviewed it. So that was one kind of very lasting thing. Well, wait, wait, wait let me stop you. So what, what was the review and what happened? Well, Reos is the little two steps down from the sidewalk, long time, Red Sauce Italian restaurant, but very well done in Spanish Harlem. And a local politician who was a friend of ours knew them and said, 
we should go there, and he wouldn't tell them who I am. And we went, and, and I was just blown away by the lemon chicken and the seafood salad and the pastas. And I went back a few times after that myself. We went as Falcone, which was my married name. And I gave it three stars. And everybody went crazy, including the restaurant. They were furious. They took the phone off the hook. They clo- This came out in July. They closed for the month of August, <laughs> thinking it would blow over. And, of course, it didn't blow over, and it grew and grew. And so now they have a restaurant in Hollywood, and they have a restaurant in Las Vegas, and they have a whole line of prepared sauces. And um, at one of my birthday parties, the then owner, Frank Pellegrino, came and talked about how surprised they were because he said, we didn't know anything about restaurant reviews. We read the Daily News. We didn't read the New York Times. (laughs) And it changed their lives. So I was somewhat nonplussed because it was really a simple, um, unprepossessing place except for the lore. Uh, A couple of weeks after it came out, I had a call from a lieutenant in the New York police force who told me it was a gathering place for the mafia. And um, (laughs) many, many years later, I was introduced to Norman Mailer, and the first thing he said is, oh, the woman who ruined Reos. (laughs) Sounds like Norman Mailer, right? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it had a coterie of writers and kind of in people. And recognizing that and loving it and then finding out that the whole world was going to love it too, which was also true of Lamy Louie and which was also true of The Palm, um, it was very gratifying for me to feel that what I liked, many, many people liked. I didn't need it for justification, but at least I felt I was on the right track as a critic. Well, Norman Mailer had one other person to be upset with. It was a long list, right? <laughs> yeah. I admired him, though. I admired him, though. He was a great writer. Mimi, thank you so much. It's been uh, an honor, and it's also been a great pleasure. Thank you. For me, too. Thank you very much, Chris. That was restaurant critic and journalist Mimi Sheraton. Sheraton is a columnist at The Daily Beast. She's also co-hosting special episodes of The Sporkful Podcast with Dan Pashman. The series is entitled Ask Mimi. You know, speaking to Mimi Sheraton reminded me how much I dislike the term food writing, a term that implies a lesser degree of art, along with terms like travel writing and sports writing. Well, it's actually pretty simple. There's great writing, there's good writing, and there's bad writing, no matter what the topic. Mimi Sheraton reminds us that even in the age of social media, good writing matters, and so I leave you with her description of a French dish entitled Truffles Under the Ashes. Quote, I was surprised to be thoroughly sated by the stunning licorice shimmer of the butterfirm interior, as well as with the strong aroma and flavor of autumn leaves, cold woodland air, mystery, earthiness, and an incredible balance of bitter, sweet, and salty. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Tuscan beef and pepper stew. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, there's a recipe. You know the recipe. It's a Tuscan beef and pepper stew. It's beef, lots of beef, obviously, pepper, ground pepper, and wine, Chianti, whatever. Just throw in a pot, cook it low and slow, come back a few hours later, it's done. 
I've made this recipe before, but the problem with the recipe, I think, is that when you just put wine in with beef in a pot, it takes a lot of the flavor out of the meat. The meat is oddly flavorless, and the wine isn't rich and unctuous. It's kind of just acidic and kind of nasty, actually. <laughs> so I, I don't know how they used to do it in Italy, but it doesn't work now here. So we brought this into the kitchen. What do we do? So, Chris, we really took the wine out of the equation, and, in fact, we took all the liquid out of the equation. And so we have really big pieces of beef. They're two-inch chunks of beef, really heavily seasoned with salt and especially pepper. And we put that in a pot with some aromatics and no liquid here. The only liquid that we're going to use to braise this meat comes from the meat itself. There's no wine, no water, no broth, nothing to kind of dilute the flavor. So you end up with a really concentrated meat juice. And you're not sautéing the meat before you put it in. You You cook the onions a little bit then put the meat in, but you're not doing anything else to the meat before it goes in. We're not, but we found a really cool way to kind of get the flavor of sautéing the meat without actually having to do the work, which, you know, we love around here. So instead of cooking it the whole time covered, we take the cover off after a couple of hours and let it cook for the last hour uncovered, and that allowed us to get some browning on the meat there that you would have gotten if you had sautéed it at the beginning, but without all the work. So what about the wine? So the wine's not in... The wine's waiting in the wings, but it's going to come back to the recipe at the end, I hope. (laughs) It does. So what we found was if we added the wine at the beginning, it really diluted not only the flavor of the sauce, but kind of made the meat taste a little weird as well. So we waited until the very end to add that. So we take the meat out of the pot, strain off the juices. We add the wine, let that cook for a little while, and then add those strained meat juices to that. It really creates a really nice, flavorful rich sauce. So this recipe, the Tuscan beef and pepper stew, almost no prep work. Cook a little onions, tomato paste, throw the meat in, three hours in the oven, take it out, reduce some wine, throw that in, and you're done. It's amazing. And it tastes great. It tastes so good. Lynn, thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Tuscan beef and pepper stew at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up next, Stephen Muse considers a new way to think about pairing wine and food. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits, 
Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be taking a few more of your calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, this is Bethany. Hi, Bethany. Where are you calling from? Houston, Texas. Nice. How can we help you today? First, I'd like to say I'm a huge fan, and I really appreciate all that you and Chris expose us to and provide. Thank you. I like to cook, and I really, um, I read something new, and I want to try, you know, these new global-type recipes. My question for you is, what are some pantry staples that would bring in a more global fare that I could use regularly in my cooking? Oh, boy. Yeah. We're going to have to pick and choose. You asked us to limit yeah. it, and that's hard. It's like... Well, you want to start with spice blends first, and sure. then we can move on to other sure. stuff. I mean, I think the spices that most people don't have, the sitar, which is based on wild thyme, but it's got lots of other stuff in it, I think is the most versatile, useful spice blend in the world. Also, sesame, sesame seeds. seeds. And yeah. sumac. Well, yeah, and sumac would be another thing. It's a berry... It used to be used almost in place of lemon. It's sour, but it's also lemony. It's great on tomatoes. You can use it on almost anything. Coriander seed, not ground coriander, is something most people don't have around, I think is also really useful. I'm going to put in a bid for uh, paprika. Smoked, smoked paprika. Smoked paprika. That's really on. great also because for vegetarians, you know, when you can't add bacon or smoked salmon or some sort of pork product, you can add smoked paprika to give it a little bit of smokiness. And you can buy, India, they have these little tins which have smaller tins in them for spices or yeah. spice blends. Or, and you can buy one of those, daba masala, and you can keep 
in that tin, sort of the all-purpose spices and spice blends. So, for example, at breakfast, I'll take the tin out and put some sitar and some pepper or something on it, and you can dress up eggs, you can dress up anything. Next is pantry items. I think tahini is absolutely yeah. a must. Yeah, and miso. Tahini, by the way, goes great with chocolate. Harissa, yes, absolutely. Mix it with Greek yogurt for a dip, for example, or as a sandwich spread. Miso is a great soup base. White miso for chicken. Or red it's a miso nice glaze for, for fish when you're baking yeah. it. And then my last suggestion would be pomegranate molasses, which you can find almost everywhere. It's sour and it's sweet. You can use it in, I use it in uh, salad dressings just a little bit. Any kind of dressing, uh, you can drizzle it over meat after it's cooked. Or ice cream. Or ice cream. Anywhere you use a good quality balsamic, you can use yes. the uh, pomegranate molasses. I also want to throw in a vote for chipotles and adobo because mm-hmm. they provide a smokiness and a wonderful heat. Two other simple things. If you buy whole cumin seed, if you get a pepper grinder, put in coarse salt and then put in cumin seed. So instead of salt and pepper, you're Chris grinding salt pepper. and cumin. Yeah. And that is just for a general all-purpose way to improve your cooking. You really can't beat that. And then the last thing is have really big crystal like sea salt or fleur de sel or Malden salt just to finish food uh, with that crunch, and you get a lot of mileage off that. That's a good start. Yeah. Okay. That is a great start. And one last thing, if you want to be a little exotic, buy Urfa pepper, U-R-F-A. You have to buy it online. It's a soft, damp pepper in sort of flakes, and it's chocolatey and rich. It's not too hot. It goes on a lot of dishes. Just a few little tricks like that can make your cooking so yeah. much better. So anyway, that's our list. <laughs> okay, We're Bill, finally done. Thank you so much. Okay. That's exactly what I was looking for. Okay, okay wonderful. Thanks, Bethany. Take Appreciate care. It. Bye-bye. This is Milstead Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking question or if you just want us to help you resolve a culinary argument, please give us a call at 855 855- 426-9843. The number, once again, is 855-426-9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Kristen. Thanks, guys, for taking my call today. Pleasure. How can we help you? My electric range recently went out and needs replacing. I got a bid for how much it would cost to run a gas line to the kitchen, which is going to be about $875. So I'd like to know your opinion. I've never cooked on a gas range, but I know it's generally preferred by professionals. But knowing this extra cost I would incur to have this luxury, is it worth it? Well, when we built out the Milk Street Kitchens a couple years ago, for a variety of reasons, we couldn't use all gas cooktops. We had to use induction for many of them. And I was not a fan of that, but we did install induction. It turns out induction works very well. It heats up fast. Uh, it's not any slower than gas. I prefer a dial, you know, and I can like to see the gas. But once you get used to the controls, then it does a terrific job. It's also safer because you're not going to burn yourself. So do, I, do I would just what, do induction. Kristen, do you know what induction is? Yeah, the magnetic cooktop. Yes, and the point is that it heats up the pan through magnetism, through the metal in the pan, so that only the pan heats, not really the burner. And it really heats it efficiently, and you can get it high and get it low very quickly. And here's the thing about induction. You'll save money in the long run because it's the most energy efficient of all forms of heat 
in cooking because okay. the heat only goes into the pan. Gas is the least efficient because the flames go out on the side. The heat goes out on the side. It's not contained. And electric okay. is better than gas, but induction's hands down the best. So you'll probably save money in other ways. It's just the one thing I would look out for is the controls because I've used a bunch of these. And some of the controls, you know, it used to be like in my day, like in a car, you'd have a radio, which had a station control and a volume. Yeah. And I could figure it out. <laughs> but with induction controls, I mean, it's like you have to hit the button, three different buttons, and it can be complicated. Well, she, so, she, Kristen sounds a lot younger than us, Chris. I think she'll figure it out. And she probably is a lot smarter than us. Yeah, but, so but, she'll but, figure it out. But check the controls be because fooled. the controls are everything. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. got turbo and it's got this other stuff. So I'm a huge fan it. of induction. I have looked into it. It is just as pricey, yeah. um, it seems. And when I do look at the gas, some of the ovens seem that they have like a dual feature where you can get the stovetop as gas and the oven as electric. Yeah. Do you have an opinion about yes. that? Yeah. Electric. Electric oven. Yeah. Oh. Much okay. better, much more even heat than gas. Okay. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kristen. Well, always wrong, but never in doubt. That's our motto. <laughs> anyway, at least we're definitive. Ain't that so. the truth. Kristen, thank you yeah. so much. Take care. Yeah, take okay, care. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Here is this week's Milk Street Basic. Amlu is a savory sweet dip from Morocco. It's a thick brown paste made with ground almonds, honey, and argan oil. Because culinary-grade argan oil is difficult to find here in the States, we simply substitute olive oil. Here's a recipe. Take one and a half cups toasted blanched slivered almonds and process until smooth in a food processor with a teaspoon of kosher salt. Then pulse in two tablespoons honey. Keep the processor running and stream in seven tablespoons olive oil. Serve with bread or use as a spread. For more culinary tips and ideas, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. It's time to visit Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge for a chat with wine expert Stephen Muse. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. Uh, Finally, we have some wine to taste. Not always the case in our wine corner yeah. here, but there is wine to taste. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so what is it we're going to taste? Well, Chris, we're going to be talking today about three aspects of wine that are important, but that often don't get talked about very much. Now, these are acidity, bitterness, and astringency. It's, it's like th- this is a, a character summation of me. <laughs> I'm going to like this segment, man. We're going to start right off here talking about acidity. Now, it's acidity in wine that gives it a sour or tart quality, right? Wine always has acidity. It's an important element in making wine refreshing, appetizing, and drinkable. And the acid in a well-balanced wine should sort of fit in nicely. It shouldn't be too noticeable, but it needs to be there. Now, we're going to start, Chris, just by pouring a little bit of this white wine. This is a Muscadet made on the French Atlantic coast. And you have a go at that. Nice, fresh, perky little wine. Yeah. I mean, it has um, it has a certain sour quality to it, mm-hmm. but it's well-balanced. Yeah. Okay. Very nice. So let's do this. I'm going to put in a little drop of lemon juice, and I'm going to have you taste it again. So what you're looking for here is not the flavor of lemon, but to see whether or not that little extra addition of acid doesn't highlight its presence in the wine, so that you notice it a bit more. Yeah, it's more overpowering. Mm-hmm. I'd say out of balance. You'd say it's out of balance yeah. now. Okay. Yeah. So this is a little experiment, Chris, that it's really worthwhile doing at home to 
help you identify the role that acid plays in wine. And the reason why we want to learn this is because, again, when you're talking to a retailer or a sommelier and they begin to talk to you about the acidity in the wine, you really want to be able to know what they're talking about. Simple as that. Got it. Okay. Okay. So let's move on to bitterness here. Now, bitterness... This is something that, in my experience, tasting wine with people, they often confuse with acidity. But bitterness is a really different thing. And if you think about the bitter foods that are on our tables, uh, things like green herbs or bitter chocolate, and chefs know that mixing bitter flavors on the plate often enhances a dish, and it's the same way with wine. We often get these bitter flavors in wine. So um, I've actually brought along a wine that I think illustrates this. This is Lambrusco, and Lambrusco is characterized by a sort of big hit of fruit right at the front, and then as it trails away, the finish begins to show a distinct note of bitterness. Mm. Well, being a bitter person, he likes (laughs) (laughs) bitter wine. It's it's true that it ends with a very clean bitter palate, which is really nice. But appealing. And one of the reasons that we love Lambrusco is because it goes so well with barbecue. It's our favorite go-to wine for barbecue, just for this very reason. Um, Okay, let's move on to astringency. I don't even know what that really means. Well... About to find out. Yeah. I'm going to hand you a coffee stirrer, and I'm just going to ask you to... Eat it? (laughs) Great. Yeah, just chew on it a little bit. What is that sensation? It's mouth puckering. <laughs> it's drying. Yeah. Yeah. So astringency is something that we appreciate in wine, particularly when we are combining it with something meaty, like a protein. The protein has some fat. The astringent in the wine has the effect of cleansing the palate so that we don't feel overwhelmed by richness. What does um, astringence taste like in wine? We're going to taste one here. This is a very interesting rosé made on the eastern coast of Italy in the Marche. So on the finish here, something different than what you tasted in the Lambrusco? I wouldn't say it it has the feeling of tongue depressor, but it does does have that certain drying effect. Yeah, Yeah, it does. Really, really dries out the palate. So we have acidity, we have bitterness, and astringency. How do I use those as a informed wine consumer, as you might okay. say? Well, it's important to be able to recognize each of these elements in wine as a separate entity, right? That's particularly useful at the table. We need acidity to keep things appetizing and zesty. We need bitterness often as a foil to foods that are a little bit rich. Um, and we, you, you mentioned Lambrusco for barbecue, for example. We love Lambrusco okay. with barbecue just for that reason. Okay. And a little bit of astringency is important to cleanse the palate, particularly when we're eating something where there's some fat involved. So you throw that nice, beautiful New York strip on the grill, and that's when you're reaching for maybe the California Cabernet or the Bordeaux which both have an element of astringence. Stephen, thank you. From one astringent man to another, uh, well said. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was wine expert Stephen Muse. Today on Milk Street, I spoke with journalist Megan McCarran about the death of Tex-Mex cuisine. 
You know, she's pessimistic about the future of Tex-Mex cooking. She says that compared to barbecue, Tex-Mex just doesn't have the attributes essential to social media success. Well, I disagree. Tex-Mex has all the ingredients for success, including crowd-pleasing food, such as enchilada plates, and real history. All it needs is a makeover. So if you're Jose Andres, Gonzalo Guzman, or Bobby Flay, please consider Tex-Mex your next project. You might just save the cuisine, as well as the families that are still making it. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can always find Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, come over to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, subscribe to our magazine to order our new book, The Complete Milk Street TV Show Cookbook. And if you never want to miss a recipe or a video, follow us on social, find us on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet, on Facebook, we're Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.